Awesome. Welcome this evening. It's really good to see you guys here. Um, just as we begin, I'm just going to read some scripture and pray. The word says, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. That is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your table and we look at the bread and we look at the cup and we look at this thing called communion that we do regularly, Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes to see you, that we would encounter you through these elements, through these simple things in a more profound and real way. Amen. Amen. All right, well, I don't know about uh, you guys, and I know we all come, different, uh, come from different stages and journeys of faith. Some of you may not be Christians or beginning that journey. Um, I grew up as a Christian, and my dad was a pastor, and so I went to church more than any human should ever be subjected to, um, which also means I sat through more communion services than most humans should ever need to. And so my, my journey and my understanding of communion has uh, been very much shaped by my childhood, and I wanted to know if I could share some of these experiences with you, because it might help. Maybe some of my thoughts about communion will resonate with your thoughts. Um, so when I was a young kid, so five or six, but to be honest, uh, still to this day, I think this. Whenever communion would come up, I'd be stoked, you know, because it'd, be, it'd come at the end of this long sermon, and you were so bored, and my dad was so long-winded, and I had to sit there because I was the pastor's kid and pretend like I was paying attention. But it blatantly wasn't. I was really good at uh, daydreaming. But then, when he finished his sermon, you could tell someone would come up and play the piano really softly, this cool synth pad would happen, and someone would bring out the food, and I would think, yes, snack time! Like, finally, we get to break up the monotony of the church, and I get to eat something, right? And so I was the kid, and I'm really holy, I was the kid that would be so excited for snack time, and when they'd go, you'd go up to the table to grab something, and you know, everyone's really proper at communion, right? So they go up to bread, and they take, like, the smallest morsel, right? Like, that barely dissolves on their tongue as soon as they take it. I'm a kid, and I'm like, well, this is snack time. I'm going to get my money's worth. So I would take a huge loaf that would take me like six or seven bites to consume. And everyone else is looking at me like, this is a jerk kid. And then same, whenever you, we do like the communion in the little cups, I'd drink it, but I wouldn't just drink it. I'd sit there and I'd like stick my tongue into it to try and get all the last little bits of grape juice because it was good and that's what I wanted to do. And then after the service, I'd be the kid that, you know, because there's always leftover, because we're always ambitious about how many people are going to show up. So we pour way more than we need to. And so at the end of the service, once they put it all to the side, I'm the kid that makes a beeline for it and then just goes to town on Jesus. Like, I'm just making my way through the loaf, doing Jesus shots, like filling up this row of shot glasses of grape juice down the hatch. Um, and if I'm honest, I... Uh, still try to do that whenever I get the chance. I don't know this church well enough to be doing that here yet. Everyone's still sussing me out as an individual, so I won't be there yet, but give it a month and you'll find me in the back corner um, <laughs> taking up the shots of juice. And then, um, so that was my experience as a kid, so snack time where I got to eat. As I got a little bit older, I kept on hearing this second bit that they would often talk about for communion. Um, there was this warning 
right, that would go out. I don't know if any of you have heard this, but it comes from this passage in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Right after that bit I just read, Paul had been talking to the Corinthians, and Paul says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable to the body and the blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment against themselves. So I'm a 12-year-old and I'm like, oh no, I'm going to hell. I've not been doing this properly. And so whenever they would give this warning, I would always think, okay, okay, before I have any of this, I need to go through every sin that I've ever committed and I need to repent of it because I don't want to let the bread touch me before I've done it, because I don't want to drink or eat judgment upon myself. And so I'd go through brain trying to like, and I'm a 12-year-old, so I'm sinning all the time, trying to like repent of everything I know of. I'm sorry I took the stapler. Uh, I, I cheated on that quiz. I didn't tell anyone. You know, I'm running through everything in my mind, trying to get right. But it always happened is that the bread would either come around or like the line that I'm in would get to the bread sooner than I'd finish repenting. And so I'm stuck in this quandary like, not done. You know, and you go through everything, and I'll, I'll, you just do that cover all. Jesus said, I'm sorry for anything I did that I didn't think of. And then you eat to try and be proper with everyone else. And it had, suddenly, communion took on this really ominous character, where if I wasn't perfect, or if I wasn't right, then I couldn't do it. If I wasn't good enough, I couldn't get access to God. So these are my two kind of growing up understandings of communion. Either it was just a fun snack time that we did to break the monotony of a church service, or it was something that I had to become holy in order to partake in. And so tonight we're going to explore communion and maybe dispel some of my uh, terrible misconceptions about communion that maybe a few of you have as well. And maybe you guys have a few others, or maybe you're just holier than me. You probably are. Um, so before we can talk about communion, I want, to, I want us to talk about three different meals. And in understanding these three different meals, I think it'll help us to understand this one a whole lot better. So the first meal is called Passover. So this was an ancient meal, like Monica said, that the Jews celebrated really regularly. So every, in ancient Israel, every year at the barley harvest, they would celebrate this feast of Passover, and all the families would come together. And as it progressed, eventually everyone went to Jerusalem. Once the temple was there, from all over the country, everyone would come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And what Passover was is it was this meal that retold the story of when they were brought out from Egypt. So now if you guys remember, there's that, you know, anyone seen the Prince of Egypt movie with Moses, Ten Plagues? So that whole amazing story where God brought the Israelites out of slavery into freedom is what this meal celebrated. And this meal was really cool because it had all these little individual elements that retold the story. So at this meal, when they would sit down, there were these really bitter herbs, these uh, really bitter vegetables that everyone had to eat. And when you ate them, it'd make your eyes water, it would stick in the back of your throat, and you'd go, you kind of like gag on them. But they ate these because they wanted to remember the bitterness that they experienced as slaves in Egypt. And they had these bowls full of brine or salt water, and they would take these vegetables and they would dip them in the salt water and then eat them. Because the salt water represent the tears that they shed for 400 years as they were under the yoke of slavery that God eventually heard. So they would dip the salt water, they dipped the herbs in the salt water. They had this bread, and rather than fluffy bread that we all like, they had unleavened bread or flat bread. 
And the reason they had flatbread is because they had to make it in a hurry. When they left Egypt, they left really quickly. They didn't have time to let the bread rise. So they just made it really quickly, put it in the oven, and off they went. So when they ate Passover, they ate flatbread to remember how quickly they left in a hurry. And during the meal, they would take the flatbread and they would break it as they retold the story. And the breaking of the bread would symbolize when they went through the Red Sea. As God parted the bread, God parted the Red Sea that they walked through. And they had these four cups. It was really actually quite luxurious and a little bit scandalous because every single person who attended Passover had four cups of wine that he was meant to drink. And you couldn't drink the next cup until you'd finished the previous one. So people are literally downing four cups of, meal, or four cups of wine at this meal. And each cup symbolized a different part of the story, God hearing their cry, God acting, God redeeming, and then God delivering. And each of these cups, as they drank it, they would retell a part of the story. And even the way they sat was indicative. So rather than uh, standing or sitting properly, they would recline on one arm. And they would recline on one arm because they would say, this is how free people eat. At that time, if you were a slave, you stood in the back in the corner and ate your food out of sight from everyone else. But a free person sits down and reclines and lounges. And so they reclined at Passover to say that they were now free people and no longer slaves. And what was cool about Passover for the Egyptians, or not for the Egyptians, uh, Passover was not great for the Egyptians, really, um, for the Jews, what happened at Passover is the people in ancient Israel who celebrated this became one with the Jewish people who were delivered out of Egypt. They were one people in that moment. Time was overlapped. And as time overlapped with the past and the present, they looked forward because often when the Jews celebrated Passover, they were under foreign occupation, whether it be Greek or whether it be Roman or whether it be Persian or Babylonian. They seemed to always be under the thumb of another ruler. So as they celebrated Passover, they remembered God's past redemptive acts and they experienced them in the present. But they also looked forward to a time when God would deliver them under the hands of Roman, Babylonian, whoever's oppression, because God promised that he will. So God's future redemption and God's past redemption all collapsed into one moment, and they were one people. Experienced God's past moment, God's present, and God's future all in one amazing meal. So this was Passover, and it was so central to who they were as a people. Let's move on to the next table that they had. This was the Last Supper. We're going to move on to Jesus. So now when Jesus, we know the story, this is the one that Paul was talking about. When Jesus gathered together with his disciples, expectations for him were running super high. So he had just come into the city with this massive parade. And remember, it's Passover time. So there are thousands and thousands of Jews from all over the country who've come in to, to Jerusalem for this feast. And when Jesus came in, they all lined up on the sides of the road hailing him as king. Messiah, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord because they saw in Jesus someone who might redeem them from Roman oppression. And then Jesus took it one step further. He went to the temple courts and flipped the tables, made a whip, and started smacking people because they turned this temple into this money profiteering thing where the poor were made poor for religious people to get rich. And so Jesus had been doing all these amazing signs and these amazing acts, and everyone was ready for it to go down. Because Jesus had finally come to Jerusalem, and that moment of redemption that they'd been celebrating in Passover was about to happen. Jesus was going to proclaim his kingship, he was going to kick the Romans out, and the nation of Israel was going to be free again. So Jesus gathers his disciples on Passover night. And they sit down 
at this table, and they hear the story that they've heard hundreds of times before. They recline, they get the bitter herbs, and they're going through everything as business as usual, business as usual, until Jesus gets to the bread, and they're ready for him to take the bread and break it and say, this is for when we walked through the Sea of Egypt. But instead, Jesus goes off script. And I'm sure a few of the disciples' minds were a little bit foggy from the multiple cups of wine that they'd had by that stage. But they see him break this bread, and instead of saying, this reminds us of walking through the Red Sea, he says, this is my body that's going to be broken for you. And surely the disciples sat there thinking, that can't be right. This doesn't make any sense. This was supposed to be the Red Sea, now it's your body. But he moves on, and they sit there kind of sitting with these words, trying to understand. And then it comes through, and it comes to the, we're not sure which cup it was Jesus talked about, but it's very likely that it was this third cup that symboled this cup of redemption when God redeemed Israel from under the oppression of Egypt. And Jesus picks up this cup, but rather than it being about the redemption of a people from a foreign oppressor, he says, this is my blood that will be shed for you as a new covenant. Drink this in remembrance of me. Now, if I were a disciple, surely you'd think I've had too many of these cups of wine because the Jews were like the originals we shouldn't eat like other people. Like from the get-go, they thought cannibalism was a bad idea. And here Jesus is purporting it. This is my body, take and eat. This is my blood, take and drink. And I could imagine if I were one of the disciples, I'd be like, <laughs> okay. Just go with it, I guess. So they drink, and this cup that symbolized redemption is now connected with his blood. And the bread that symbolized deliverance is now connected with a broken body. But they still had no idea what it meant. And they still had no idea the significance. So what happens is they leave from this meal, and they go out to a garden to pray, and all hell breaks loose. Everything they thought should happen didn't happen. Instead of Jesus being proclaimed as king, he's arrested like a thief in the middle of the night. He goes through a mock trial with false witnesses that anyone can see are lying, but you can tell that the judges are corrupt because he's proclaimed guilty anyway. He's beaten. He's whipped. They put a crown on his head, and he's bleeding and tired, and Pilate washes his hands and says, crucify him, be done. All of their hopes and expectations are now being put to death. Passover, which was supposed to take the past of God's redemption, the present of our current suffering, and the future of God's redemption is now falling apart and unwinding because the person who was supposed to do that is dying. And he does. Upon the cross, he breathes his last. And that's the end of the story. The disciples walk away in shame, in fear, and in hiding. And for a couple of days, they try to figure out how to put their lives together because they put their hope in the wrong man. Everything that Passover was meant to symbolize is now somehow meaningless because they got duped into a cult and a con. Until on that wonderful third day. Jesus comes back in these miraculous sightings, and to be honest, half of the disciples don't even believe it. But as he comes back, he shows them that his body is now made whole. And his blood that was shed on the cross has made a new covenant for all. So much bigger than just Passover, so much bigger than just redemption for Israel. This is redemption for all of humanity. 
And that redemption that they longed for was not found in the coming of a strong and mighty king who would force the bad guys to do what he wants. But that redemption was found in the man who gave himself for all. And in weakness, humility, and suffering, redemption was bought. Not for one people, but for all of us. Amazing. Passover had happened, but happened so much different than they ever thought it would. That redemption, that future, that past, that present had all come to be in the person of Jesus Christ. He really has defeated everything. It's the second meal. The third meal, which we need to look at, is a communal meal. So Jesus goes back up to heaven, and these very Jewish disciples are left kind of being like, well, I guess now we continue a movement. Let's do it. You know, and so they move forward, and in Acts 2, it talks about Peter giving this amazing sermon and thousands coming to faith. And what did they do? They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread with one another. And the church grew really rapidly. And to be honest, it grew in a way they didn't expect, rather than it being just Jewish. So rather than uh, communion still being heavily tied to Passover, it was flooded with all kinds of different nationalities, Greeks, Romans, Persians, all these different groups suddenly flooded into the church. And so communion ended up shifting as all these different cultures and nations found their way in. All these different peoples became part of one family. And so what they ended up doing is they committed themselves to the breaking of bread together. I want to read you a little excerpt. There's, a, um, there's this really cool letter that was written by a Roman governor named, Pli Roman governor named Pliny. And this was in the early church days. And he's writing to a senator in Rome because he's got this problem with all these Christians who are cropping up in his city. And he doesn't quite know what to do with them, so he's writing for advice, saying, how do I deal with these guys as the best as I can? And I want to read it to you because it gives this amazing picture of what this kind of communal meal and what this early church looked like. He writes about the Christians, saying, they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn, and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God, and to bind themselves by an oath, not to a crime, but to not commit fraud or theft or adultery, to not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and assemble again later to partake of food, but ordinary, innocent food. So accordingly, I judged it all the more necessary to find out the truth um, by torturing two female slaves who were called deaconesses and who presided over their meals, but discovering nothing else but depraved and excessive superstition, I let them go. There's a lot here that I just want to unpack for you. Um, the first one is that there was this regular thing where they would gather before dawn and they would read the scriptures, and they would pray together. And then they would assemble later for this communal meal. And this meal got named lots of different things, agape or love feast. It had all these different names, but the heart of it was everyone would bring what they had. The rich who had lots would bring what they had, and the poor who had little would bring what they had. And as one family, they would break the bread, saying, this is Christ's body. And they would drink this cup, saying, this is a new covenant. And by doing this, they became a new family. And what's so significant here is that the two people that this Roman governor interviewed were two female slaves who were called deaconesses. 
Now, for us, we think, oh, that's nice. But for them, it was so incredibly progressive that the people who would officiate this meal were slaves. The Roman system was a class system on steroids, and if you had anyone over at a house, it was the richest, most well-to-do person who would preside over the meal because he would host. But the Christians had slaves do it. And not just slaves, they had women doing it. Again. <laughs> yeah, Monica. <laughs> Woo! It was this amazing thing because no one would have had a woman presiding over a meal. They would have been there, but they would have been quiet. They would have been there to look pretty and to solidify marriages. Never would they have presided over the meal. What this letter shows us is that this early church's meal was so much more than a meal. It was a new family that was created together. The rich would sit next to the poor as a slave officiated food, and they broke the bread and said, this is Jesus's body. This is Jesus here with us. And they would take the cup and they would drink, saying, this is Jesus's blood. Jesus, who is making us a new family and who has redeemed all of us, whether we be rich or poor, whether we be slave or free, whether we be male or female, we are made into one new family by this man. And so then they would drink together and they would have this huge feast and everything would have what they need. And so the reason that Paul writes this warning, we'll discuss this because I think it can get really misinterpreted. When Paul was talking to them saying, you're taking this in an unworthy manner, he wasn't just saying, you guys had sinned, so you can't come at the table. What had happened was when they would gather for these communal meals, the rich or the powerful or the free would show up early and they would feast and pick out on all the food. They would drink the wine and get drunk. They would take all the special seats and leave no room so that when the poor or the slaves or the lowest class people showed up after a long day of work, the food was already gone. And they were relegated to sit outside in the cold and eat the scraps that were left over. And so that's why Paul was so angry, saying, this isn't, this isn't the Lord's Supper that you're eating if you're doing this to one another. Because it's only the Lord's Supper if we eat as one. A new family where the old lines that divided us no longer do. If the only thing that divides us and connects us is Jesus, that's what binds us as one family. So now I'm sure Paul wouldn't, he still wouldn't say, come and like drink it like it's no big deal. But what Paul was getting at is so different from what the pastors who I heard growing up was getting at. Because we misinterpret this meal if we think we have to get holy to get to it. And if we do that, we are missing the entire point. So let's come to this meal, this table. And it's an invitation to each and every one of us. And it's not about becoming holy to get to it. It's by coming to it, we become holy. It's not about being strong in order to eat of the bread and wine. It's by eating of it that we become strong. It's not about being pure. It's by coming to it, we become pure because in it, we find Jesus a representation of him, and by his spirit, he transforms us. And as we gather around it, this table for us is a story that redefines us. Just like for Passover, the past and the present and the future were all overlapped into one moment, so it happens for us. This table is a story that re-narrates who we are. The past of Jesus' death and resurrection is brought into the present as we partake of these things. 
Jesus' death and blood heals us, purifies us, makes us strong, and makes us into one family as we partake of it. Even in the midst of our present difficulties and our present uh, oppression, our present doubt, our present fears, our present failures, and our present insecurities, Jesus' past victory is met and overlapped with our current failures. And the future redemption of which we all look forward to, we know there will be a day when Jesus returns. And it's going to be a beautiful day because death will finally be done away with. Every tear, every sorrow, every anguish that we face will be healed by his presence amongst us. Every dividing wall that still fights us, for the, for the women who still fight to get forward in this world and seek equality, that will be done away with in Christ's return. The anxiety that cripples us from one another and doesn't allow us to be who we are because we're so desperately afraid that we're going to get judged and shoved out if people ever saw the real us will be done away with as in Jesus we will be known fully and fully known. The pain that our bodies are still experiencing through sickness, frailty, and infirmity will be healed by his presence and we will be strong. All those future redemptions that we look forward to in Christ's return are brought forward into this moment. As we partake of it, we experience a bit of God's healing. We experience a bit of the unifying action that will be present in the new creation. We receive the healing that we so desperately long for inside and where we are weak and frail, Jesus can make us strong as we partake of this and we retell our story around this table. If I can invite the band out, we're just going to move into a time of partaking in this communion. And now I know for lots of us, we may come from different areas and different backgrounds, and you may be fully on board with Jesus thinking, yes, this is me. You may be thinking, oh, I'm still trying to suss this out. That's okay. There's no pressure here but I want to invite us to this table to meet with Jesus and have him meet our needs as we encounter him in the bread and in the cup. Let me just read a call. Come to the table, the lost the lonely, the broken and breaking, the tired and the aching who long for the nourishment of your feast. Come to the table, the done and the doubting, the wishing and the wondering, the puzzled and the pondering who long for the company found at your feast. Come to the table, the proud and pretentious, the sure and superior, the never inferior, who long for the leveling found at your feast. Come to the table, the bright and bustling, the stirrers, the shakers, the kind laughter makers, who long for the deeper joys found at your feast. Come to the table, from corner or from limelight, from mansion or from campsite, 
from fears and obsession, from tears and depression, from untold excesses, from treasured successes, to meet, to eat, to be given a seat, to be joined to the vine, to be offered a new wine, to become like the least, and to be found at this feast. We're gonna move into a time where I'm gonna uh, invite all of you to come to this table. And I pray that you will encounter Jesus here in whatever stage you are at. If you are joyful, come joyful with your heart full of thanksgiving for what God has done. If you are weary and tired and broken, come find rest and nourishment and strength in Him. If you are doubting and puzzled and unsure of Him, come that He might comfort you. If you are anxious or fearful or weary, come that He might make you safe. For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when He was betrayed, He took the loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. The redemption that brought Israel through the Red Sea, the body that was broken on the cross that has brought freedom to all of humanity, this body is broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The cup that symbolized the restoration of a people from slavery and oppression and brought them into freedom is now found in my blood that is shed for you on the cross and redeemed when I rose again from the dead. So that any difficulty, any, any struggles or trials you face are overcome because I have already defeated them through this blood shed on the cross. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I'm just going to pray in a second and when you are ready, please come and stand and make your way to the table. We have the bread and we have cup there. Um, if you come as a couple, serve it, to your, serve it to your spouse. If you come alone or you want some moments to yourself, take it and think and ponder in solitude. The bread and the cups are there and there's a basket in the middle where you can put the cups when you're finished with them. Um, take your time. There's no rush. And again, if you're not even sure about this whole faith thing, please feel free to just sit and rest and relax as the musicians play. Let me pray. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. As we gather around this table, a new family, a new humanity created by you, we pray that you, by your spirit, would meet us. Fill us, strengthen us, inspire us to worship, to thanksgiving, and to mission. Be Jesus in this place. We come to this table not because we have it together, but because we desperately need you, Jesus.
so would you be found in the past and the present and the future all overlap around this table. We love you.